Okay, Psalm 37. Now, um, as has been typical of this class, we have started this by putting up a an outline of the psalm on the board. You notice that I'm not doing that. It may be that I suggest one because there are a few things that may help us divide the chapter a little bit. But what you see mainly is there are themes that keep repeating themselves. They keep repeating themselves over and over. Look at how frequently the word wicked is used. Now, that is not even dealing with... These verses are not dealing with the synonyms that are used for the wicked, like evildoers and words like this. This is just the word wicked. So you see how frequently that appears. The word righteous appears frequently, not as frequently, but it appears frequently. And the Bible is showing the consequences of sin and the blessings of righteousness. Both of these phrases are used five times. The wicked are said to be cut off in these five verses. And the righteous are said to inherit the land. Or some of your translations may have inherit the earth. Some of you may remember there's a passage in the Bible somewhere. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That's a quotation Jesus quoting from Psalm 37, verse 11, the Septuagint version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so you see that. Now, there are also a lot of imperatives. One of you young, sharp high school students, tell us what an imperative is. What is an imperative sentence? What? A command. Yes, I want to be high school student, but command. But the imperatives here, uh, they're going to instruct us in a certain type of behavior. They're going to tell us something to do. What are we to do with these truths that the wicked are cut off and the righteous will inherit the land? What we do with those truths is often expressed by these imperatives. Now, what is the situation of writing the psalm? These are questions I'm not going to answer right now. I want you to think about them. And we'll try to answer them at the end as we try to talk about uh, also how does this psalm apply to Christ? How does it apply to Him? But let's read the first 11 verses if you want to outline it. The first 11 verses are sometimes seen as a unit and it's in sometimes it's given a title just like verse 1. Don't fret because of evildoers. But verses 1 through 11, a psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. There's an imperative. 
Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in the way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully at his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Do not fret. Those words were in verse seven, verse 1, they're in verse 7, and they're also in verse 8. Same word in Hebrew. Now, some writers say that's not a good translation of that. Do not fret, because the word carries with it the idea of being angry. Here are people who are angry and outraged at what is going on. Do not fret. Do not be angry. Because of evildoers. Because of wrongdoers. Because they're going to wither like the grass. Now, the grass that comes up in Palestine doesn't stay green very long. Winter is the rainy season. And in the summer, when the grass comes up, the spring, the summer, when the grass comes up, it's only green a little while and then quickly turns brown. Remember when in John 6, uh, or excuse me, it's Mark 6 at the Passover, where the Bible says that Jesus had them set on the green grass. The green gra- It wouldn't have been very often in Palestine the grass was green, but that was around a Passover time, if you remember. But um, so the grass quickly withers. The evildoers always wither that quickly. Not always, do they? They don't wither as quickly as the Palestinian grass. <coughs> Let me raise this question and I want you to be thinking about it as we go through. Does this psalm promise too much? Does it paint too rosy of a picture? Oh, if you live right, everything's going to be fine. If you do wrong, you're going to be destroyed. Does it do that? Ask yourself that question. And also ask yourselves the question, why would this have been written? Why, what would have been the circumstances to, to write this? I think the answers can help us, but, but I want you to make sure to look at the text through that lens. Um, trust in the Lord. He calls us to do several things here. To trust in the Lord, to delight ourselves in the Lord, to commit our way to the Lord, to rest in the Lord, and to wait patiently for the Lord. That phrase in verse 4, or the expression in verse 4, it's beautiful, 
and it has been subject to misuse as well. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Have you ever heard that verse misused? And I have as well. I can remember that when we were in the apartment, first got here, that one morning I was in there exercising, nobody was else else was around. I could turn the TV wherever I want. And I found a television preacher and said, I'm going to just listen to him and see what he says. In my 30 minutes, I was exercising. He didn't do anything except ask for money. And to tell people how they would be blessed if they would give. He didn't use this verse as I remember, but he used some that were like it. Is this telling us that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, we're going to drive the best car and have the best house? I think what it's saying is if we delight ourselves in the Lord, we will have Him, our greatest desire. Seek the Lord and you will find Him. The book of Chronicles often says, Seek the Lord and you will find Him. Forsake Him and He will forsake you. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. What could make us happier than the fact that we do the right thing, our children do the right thing, people that we care about do the right thing, that that baptisms occur. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Him. Trust in Him. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. If you just do these things, you are always going to experience justice. There's never, never an innocent person that's convicted of wrong, is there? Well... Is that saying that? Or what is that saying? Just right now ponder all of that unless you've got something compelling that you just want to say. Uh, any thoughts right here? Any ideas that you're having on these first five or six verses? Okay, he uses another imperative in verse 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. Several of them as a matter of fact. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Now just look at verse 7. Should we expect from verse 7, in light of verse 7, should we expect the wicked to always wither really quickly? Should we? How does that inform us about that subject? (coughs) Or does it? Doesn't it seem to imply a situation where wicked people are prospering and wicked people are doing well? Does this indicate that the reason he keeps telling us that the wicked are going to be cut off is it may not be that apparent just from circumstances that that's the case 
It may not always look that way in the world. It doesn't look that way in the world that the wicked will be cut off and the righteous will inherit the land. Cease from anger, verse 8. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. So you can work ourselves up by seeing the abuse of this wicked person of power to such a degree that we forget what we need to do. That we become evildoers, verse 8, like he was in verse 1. And the Bible assures us evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Both of those phrases, key expressions, inheriting the land, being cut off. And you see there are several verses that use both of these together. Uh, That they use both the wicked being cut off and the righteous inheriting the land. They are contrasted with each other. In verse 10, yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and they will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And by the way, the word delight in verse 11, it's the same word used in verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. They will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Uh, a word, there's a word in Hebrew that's used twice in verse 10. And that word is, is simply sometimes called a particle of non existence. And this word means there is no or there is not. And it's used twice in verse 10, Psalm 37, verse 10, and it's going to be used later in verse 36. But here, the wicked man will be no more. You will look for his place, he will not be there. It's just, it's almost like, remember what I called it, a particle of non-existence. It's almost like he's never was. He's just completely gone. And, and later we're going to see that picture even more dramatically. But this is what's going to happen with the wicked. They're going to be cut off and they're going to be totally forgotten and it's just like they were never there to begin with. But in contrast, the the gentle, the meek, the humble, however you translate that, are going to inherit the land. Who are those who are humble or gentle or meek? Who are they? They are people who trust in the Lord, who delight themselves in the Lord, who commit their way to the Lord, who rest in the Lord and wait patiently on Him. And in spite of the fact that there's all kinds of dishonesty going around, they will inherit the land. Now, last week, we used this verse in connection with Psalm 36, verse 4. This Psalm 36, 4 It says, He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. This is a verse we read in connection with it. Micah 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, 
who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now they were planting wickedness on their beds. That's why we read that verse last time. They work out evil on their beds, Micah 2.1. But what is the evil they're working out? They are working out plans to covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. And maybe there are prosperous and powerful rich people, even in Israel, who are coveting fields and houses and taking them. And the righteous are suffering as a result. And David says, Still, it is the humble who do the right thing who are going to inherit the land. And it's going to be the wicked and the evildoers who are going to be cut off. There are consequences for actions. All of us know, particularly I say this to younger people. We can can choose the way we go. But we don't get to choose the consequences of that. Whatever way we choose, we have to accept the consequences that go with it. And the consequences of wickedness is to be cut off and righteousness is to inherit the land. What what other thoughts do y'all have? I, I'm afraid I intimidated you too much by telling you I was going to keep you here all night. And you're saying, hurry up. I'm not going to draw it out with a comment. So, um, John? So, I have a note that David, I mean, acknowledges he's an older person later on. Is there indication that he's addressing those who are young? Not directly. I, I do take it that he appeals to his experience because he may be talking to someone who doesn't have it and okay. doesn't share okay. it. Okay. He doesn't specifically say that. Listen, young people, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that. But I think it is kind of implied, yes. Yes. I was just thinking that there's been um, some people in my life, even before I was a Christian, and um, they I felt like they always got away with bad things. Like they, yeah. they never have any consequences, get away with everything, and they're all passed away now yeah. with no hope. Yes, yes, I understand. You know, God's justice isn't always meted out quickly from our perspective. But it comes. But it comes. And and we can all think of illustrations like Danielle mentions, that just hundreds of illustrations where you see that kind of thing. And uh, I, I'm think I thought about one the last couple of days as I've been going over this psalm. Verses twelve through fifteen gives us a real snapshot of the wicked, an up close shot of them. And look at verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. He gnashes at him with his teeth. We saw that expression back in 3516. 
And we talked about that then. And he hates the righteous. He gnashes his teeth at him. He is scheming, plotting to destroy him. And the Bible says, the Lord laughs at him. For he sees his day is coming. Isn't that an interesting response? God in heaven is not terrified nor trembling. God is laughing. And the laughing indicates that this person is no challenge. I can remember hearing something as I was driving. This was several years ago. Um, But there was an NBA player. And one of the better NBA players. And there was a teenager who was on Twitter um, making some criticisms of him. And, and these people were saying, how foolish it is. He got on there, this NBA player, and answered those criticisms. Listen, when you get a high school kid criticizing you like that, just be quiet. Just be quiet. Because there's no threat to you. There's no threat to you. And I use that as an illustration. You may say, where does that come from? It's using as an illustration. However powerful they are. And however they may strike fear in human hearts, they are not a threat to God. The Lord laughs at them. He laughs at them. And He sees their day is coming. He knows the day of the wicked is coming. Now, I want to say, God is wanting them to repent. That's the very reason He spares this world. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But He knows if He doesn't, His day is coming. That this person is not getting away with their actions. In verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and bent the bow to cast down the afflicted and needy, to slay those who are upright in heart. And their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. They are plotting against the righteous, gnashing their teeth at him, drawing their sword, bending their bow. But ultimately, that sword is going to pierce them in verse 15. In other words, the plots and plans they lay for others will come back to trap them. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Now that's a statement there in 37.15 of Lex Talionis that the punishment fits the crime. And we've seen that idea in Psalm 7 verses 12-16, through 16, in Psalm 9 verses 15 and 16. If you want to look those up and compare them. But that's a snapshot of the wicked. And we see them up close and personally. And we see that they are no threat to God and to His reign. That doesn't mean that we laugh. Because we often are trembling. The Bible calls us not to fret. The Bible's teaching us to see things from an eternal perspective. And God help us. Verse 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Now, forget we're in Psalms here. If you read a statement like that generally, better is a little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. If you just opened up your Bible and you saw that statement, you're going to think you're in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, yes. Proverbs uses that kind. It uses many better than Proverbs. Now, think just a moment. 
What does that better than proverb apply? What does it imply? What does that better than proverb imply? Okay. Okay, exactly. But does this tell us that the wicked may have much? And the righteous may have little? Remember the question I asked you before? Does the psalm promise too much? Does it paint too glowing a picture? Think about that. The Bible shows there may be a choice between having a little and being righteous and having much and being wicked. In verse 17, the arms of the wicked will be broken. But the Lord sustains the righteous. We saw earlier in Psalm 10 verse 15, I believe it was, a statement about uh, where God was asked, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Psalm 10 verse 15. And now here in Psalm 37 verse 17, the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. In verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in time of evil. And in days of famine, they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will be will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The Lord knows the days of of the blameless in verse 18. You see that phrase, the Lord knows? Remember back in Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a difference between if God knows everything about all people, but the Lord's knowing here is a statement not only of His complete knowledge, but His support and strength and holding us up. He is walking with us. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. Their inheritance will be forever. Now verse 19, I ask you to look at your translation. Any of your trans- My translation, New American Standard, said they will not be ashamed in a time of evil. Do any of your translations have they will not wither? Yeah. Somebody said, yeah, okay, what, what translation is that? Uh, NIV. Okay, NIV has wither. Okay, in verse 19. Now, the debate here is one that we're not going to get into here about what's the Hebrew root of this word. And really, I, it was, I, I'm not good at that aspect of of uh, the language anyway. But this is the point. This is a if that is the best translation, contrast that with verse two. The wicked man is going to fade like the grass and like the green herb, but in contrast to that, the godly person's not going to wither. He's not going to dry up. He is not going to be like the grass which is here today and gone tomorrow. In verse 14, he's said to be forever. His inheritance is forever. But the wicked in verse 20, they will perish. Now to keep our to keep our connections with Psalm 1. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Same word. 
And that means perish and knows are opposite there. The fact the Lord knows us may indicate He's going to know us for all time. We're in a relationship with Him, in fellowship with Him. He's going to care for us through time and through eternity. But here, in contrast, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. What what thoughts do you you all have? Anything? It's It's a great psalm, isn't it? It is a great psalm. Now, also, some of you that we're writing down, and um, you will be expected to give every verse uh, these on the test. <laughs> but, but also a, a good category you can make. What are characteristics of the righteous? What are characteristics of the wicked? We've already seen a couple of characteristics of the wicked. We have seen that the wicked man carries out wicked schemes in verse 7. We've seen he plots against the righteous in verse 12 and 14. But but he also gives characteristics of the righteous. And this is the first time he's done this. But here they're in stark contrast, verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. The righteous is gracious and gives. What what does that contrast in itself say? Here's someone that's borrowing money right and left, never pays back the debt. And here's the other person who is giving. What what does that indicate? Selfish? Selfish. Selfishness. Yes, yes. Selflessness on the part of the one who's giving or at least concern for others uh, above himself in that respect. And the one who does not pay back, he's selfish. But verse 22, those blessed by him will inherit the land and those cursed by him will be cut off. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who is able, the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Now, there are a couple of things in this verse that are hard for me to determine. In verse 23, is the righteous man delighting in the Lord or is the Lord delighting in the righteous man? Same thing in verse 24. Um... Or same kind of idea. Is the righteous man falling? Is this moral and spiritual? Or is it physical? Is it, is it like just hard times in life? Or is it sin? And really, I guess the answer to that is in verse 24. The second question could be both, can it? When the righteous man has difficulty in life, or when he does wrong. The Lord is the one who holds him up. The Lord is the one who sustains him. And then he makes a statement that John referred to earlier in verse 25. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his his descendants are a blessing. I have been young, 
and now I'm old. David acknowledges the stage of life he's in. I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Now, if there is a famine that strikes some part of the world and Christians are affected, should we view them as hypocrites in light of that statement? Keep that in mind because I want to come back to that verse. Who could you think of in the Bible that would have really liked this verse? It may not be necessarily a good character or good characters. Who would really like this verse? I think of Job's friends. That's their kind of verse right here. Now, understand, the problem is not with the verse. The problem is with what some people might do with that verse. But I want you to keep, we ask, what were the circumstances of writing the psalm? What was the situation? Why the imperatives? Keep all these things in mind. What is he trying to do with this? We want to come back, we want to come back to that question. Verse 27, again an imperative. And you notice that most of the imperatives die off after the first 11 verses. But here in 27, depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. So you have the descendants mentioned in verse 25, verse 26, verse 28. In verse 25, I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Instead of begging, his descendants in verse 26 are giving. This man is a blessing even after he's dead because his descendants are still blessing others. They are being gracious and giving. In verse 28, verse 28, but in contrast to these descendants of the righteous, the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. In 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. And his steps do not slip. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. That statement there in 37 in verse uh, 30. The word utters is the same word translated meditates in Psalm 1-2. The blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord both day and night. Here, the mouth of the righteous utters. He meditates on wisdom. A a value of reading the Bible and reading the Bible daily. It, It just helps us make that be the foundation of our thinking in our life. We utter... We meditate on it. We speak about it. And his tongue speaks about justice. Verse 28, God loved justice. And his tongue speaks of this. In verse 31, the law of God is in his heart. His steps don't slip. Verse 32, the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hands. 
or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Anything right there that you see? Anything you have questions about? Verse 35. I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in his native soil. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Here's our particle of non-existence. I couldn't find him. I saw him and he was like spreading out like a luxuriant tree. And... He passed away, and I couldn't find any evidence that he'd ever been there. Now, we have pointed out some connections between Psalm 37 and Psalm 1. Psalm 37 speaks of the wicked like a tree, like a big tree, a huge tree that just disappears. You remember what Psalm 1 said? It talked about the righteous being like a tree planted by the waters. Its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. This tree may not be as glamorous looking, but it keeps living. Well, that big luxuriant tree, there's not a, there's not even a trace left of that. Mark the blameless man, verse 37. Mark the blameless man and behold the upright. For a man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. Did you notice verse 37 and 38 use the word posterity? (coughs) And um, I used a verse in a sermon Sunday morning, Proverbs 5, 4. Um, when it talks about the adulterous woman whose lips are sweeter than honey, and it says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Uh, the Hebrew word behind in the end in Proverbs 5, 4 is the same word that's translated posterity in verse 37 and verse 38. Here it's referring to a person's descendants, a person's offspring. Uh, a different word was used in verse 25, 26, and 28. But the man of peace, he's going to leave behind an offspring. But the wicked, he's going to be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Verse 39, he is their strength in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Okay? Now, Anything that I should have gone over, I know we have a lot of questions I said we'd come back to. But anything right there that you have a comment about? Now, I ask you, uh, like, what, what, what could have occasioned this psalm? And I'm not talking about a situation that's too specific. I'm not asking for all the details. I'm just asking for kind of a general picture. What could have been a situation that gave rise to this psalm? And what is this psalm trying to do? 
What could have what could have been? What's that? Okay, it is meant to encourage. Encourage, to exhort. It's meant to do to do all of that. Um, there are several signs throughout this of the 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 fact that the righteous may prosper, may have encouraged this. I mean the use some of our board here. The righteous may prosper? Excuse me. Uh, yes, they may, but, but I'm thinking particularly about the wicked. You're right. And, and you catch that that was a mistake. Wicked. Why would you be fretting at the wicked and be envious of the wicked if they didn't have something that you didn't have? <coughs> It may be that verse 1, that very commandment, and it's also repeated as we stated in verse 7 and 8, don't be angry, don't fret, don't be upset. This very commandment may indicate that the wicked are doing well. And it's easy to become angry, particularly when their prosperity is because they're mistreating righteous people. And we see that in the song. And we see them getting away with it, as we mentioned earlier. And it is disturbing. And we fret. The statement in verse 16, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked, may imply that they are prospering, that the wicked are doing quite well. And you notice in verse 35, they're, com- they're compared to the finest of trees. A matter of fact, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament here compares them to the cedars of Lebanon. They are compared to the best of trees, the strongest and largest of trees. All of these are signs that the righteous, the wicked, may be prospering And so maybe that's part of the thing that the psalm was written about. And do all the experiences of this psalm seem to bear true to the events of the Old Testament? Let me just give you an illustration. I I can look at some verses and I can say, aha, yeah, I can see some connections. Like, for example, look at verse 19. They will not be ashamed, or they will not wither in times of famine, and in the day, in the days of, in the time of evil, excuse me, and in the latter part of verse nineteen, in the days of famine, they will have an abundance. In the days of famine, they will have an abundance. You remember, in First Kings seventeen, there's a drought that sweeps over the whole land. Elijah go, Elijah goes down. He drinks of the brook. And God feeds him, sends the ravens to feed him in morning and evening. And then Elisha leaves there. And Elijah Elijah goes to Zarephath. And when he goes to Zarephath, there is a widow there. And he says, can you make me a little cake? And she says, I only have a little flour and a little oil. And we were going to make a cake for me and my son. And we were going to eat it. And that's all we had. And we were just going to wait to starve to death. And Elijah said, thus says the Lord God. God of Israel, if you make me a little cake first, your jar will never be fin- full, uh, 
will always have plenty of oil and you will have plenty of flour as long as this famine lasts. And she did it. And it happened. You see, in days of famine, they will have an abundance. But look at verses 32 and 33. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hands or let him be condemned when he is judged. There was a man who lived next to the king. The king says, I really like your vineyard. I'll give you whatever you ask for it. Or I'll give you another place even better than this. And he says, I can't depart with my inheritance from the Lord. Ahab goes home sulking. His wife says, why are you so sad? He says, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. She said, are you not the king of Israel? I'll get that vineyard for you. And she wrote letters in the king's name and sealed it with the king's seal. And she said, you call a fast. And you have worthless men at this fast. Stand up and say that Naboth cursed God and the king. And you take him out and you stone him. Now that not only happened to Naboth, that's in 1 Kings 21. 1 through 16. There is a note in 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 9, 25 and 26. Naboth's sons were killed. What would Naboth have said? The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him alone in his hand or let him be condemned when he's judged. As a matter of fact, what would Uriah have said about that? This is my question. Does it always seem like in our world the wicked will be cut off and the righteous will be vindicated? Does it always seem that way? It does not seem yeah. that way. And the psalm, I think, is written because it doesn't seem that way. And this psalm is written to encourage us, and I think particularly as John said earlier, younger people who maybe could not refer to experiences in their life and see how all these things manifest themselves. But it's written to younger people that convince them that no matter how things appear and no matter what is happening at the given moment, the path to blessing is righteousness and the path to evil, the path of wickedness is a path of self-destruction. That's the purpose of the psalm. The purpose of the psalm and all these imperatives of the psalm, which I had written up there a moment ago, all those imperatives are for the purpose, they are for instructional purposes because this psalm is pleading with us and appealing to us to live a certain way in light of the fact that the righteous will inherit the land and the wicked will be cut off. No, Naboth didn't experience that in his life. The prophets of the Old Testament who were stoned and who were killed did not experience that. But that doesn't mean this doesn't mean anything. These are God's words and they're still true 
but it may be that we really have to think about them. Now, let's go back to verse 25 that we talked about earlier. And and I stated in verse 25 that Job's friends would have loved that verse. That's the kind of thing they use. By the way, Job's friends quote the book of Proverbs quite often. They said a lot of things that were right. But I have been young, now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Is that meant to to help us distinguish who's righteous and who's wicked? Is that the purpose of the passage? Is the purpose of the passage to say, if anybody comes to us and say, I need food, well, obviously you've sinned. Because, because of this. Or is the purpose, again, telling us that in spite of how things appear, righteousness is the path of blessing and wickedness will destroy us. I think he's addressing perspective. Yeah. He's saying, I'm old. Here's the perspective I have now. What I have seen doesn't mean I've seen everything. Doesn't mean a righteous person couldn't go without, but what I have seen, you 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 can trust my experience. Exactly, and, and he says, "Learn from this." And, and now I did this in a sermon Sunday morning. If you remember what I was talking about, people, I can look back and and I, and, I, and I'm wondering how many specific examples to give in light of this thing. Uh, just for several reasons even though it may be a rare thing that anybody else would hear it but us but I can look at people that I grew up with that were living immorally and doing things sexually immorally from the time they were 13 or 14 and they were still popular and everything was going great and and I won't tell you even though I disagreed with them and they knew it um, I still liked them too in a way because they were likable people but some of them pretty shortly thereafter found themselves broken and alone and probably haven't been with anyone sexually in a long time Uh, paying attention to what God says makes sense whether it is sexual morality or whatever it is whether it's cheating other people in business or whatever it is it pays makes a difference to listen to God and it's trying to encourage us in a certain line of behavior and I can see that there are points in life that would lead us to say, oh, this psalm just paints too rosy a picture. What about a story that we know of recently? Of two young Christians out whose car is hit by a drunk driver. One is killed and the other is hospitalized. Would it be hard for those parents to read through some of these words. Yes, 
It would be hard. It would be hard for any of us. But that doesn't mean it's not true, does it? But it does mean we don't always see it here. We don't always see it in our experience. Now, let's tie all this together. How does this psalm speak of Jesus? Where do you see Jesus in Psalm 37? What made you think of Him as we were reading over these verses? Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous okay. and gnashes at him with his teeth. Certainly, in verse 12, verse 32, the wicked plots against the righteous and wants to kill him. Verse, verse 32 says, wants to kill him. And Jesus lived that, and his and the opposition he experienced started very early. You remember the Mark's gospel? It's at Mark three six where they were planning to kill him. I mean, we're barely started in the gospel of Mark before they're trying to kill him. And usually that note's delayed a little bit in the other gospels, but they're plotting against him, and they are um, they are trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus lived that part of it. Um, didn't he? What else? He punishes the... Do you want me to read like, the verse? Or, well, let's see. If you trust in Him and dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture, take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Okay. Okay. Okay, this is... Let me, let me take that, Daniel, and, and say it this way. Jesus, there are three ways. What John just said, Jesus experiences the opposition that the righteous of Psalm 37 experience. Jesus experienced the opposition that the righteous people of Psalm 37 experience. Now, the passage that you read, verses 3 through 7, Jesus lived in trust and dependence upon God that this psalm calls us to. And Jesus ultimately experienced the deliverance that that Psalm 37 speaks of. So Jesus experienced the opposition. He lived in trust and dependence (laughs) on God. And He ultimately was vindicated. Now, 
For example, in verse 28, the Lord loves justice. He does not forsake His godly ones. He does not forsake His godly ones. In verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in His hand. The word abandon in verse 28... The word leave in verse 33 are from the same Hebrew word. It is the same Hebrew word used in Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A statement that's quoted on the cross, of course, by Jesus in Matthew 27 and verse 46 in Mark 15 in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? In spite of appearances, was Jesus ultimately abandoned? I'm not trying to get into the debate whether that momentarily happened. But, but, because I don't know all the answers uh, there. But the point, God ultimately did not abandon His godly one, did He? In verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he's judged. Again, does it seem like that passage is fulfilled in the experiences of Jesus? It seems like God did. God did leave Jesus in the hands of the wicked and let him be condemned. God is said to hand him over. But... But I would say this, that ultimately, as verse 6 says, God vindicates Jesus. It says in verse 6, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. God vindicated Christ by the resurrection. He raised Him from the dead. The one that you declare guilty, God found innocent. God reversed the ruling of a lower court by raising Jesus from the dead. He vindicated Him. He showed His greatness. Um, He showed the greatness of Jesus, the innocence of Jesus. I think Jesus, instead of being an awkward exception to verses 32 and 33... Shows us the depth of meaning in verses 32 and 33. That it may be all through a person's life. He may never find deliverance. And may never find rest from his troubles. But Jesus shows us that even if it doesn't come in this life, it can come in resurrection. I can't imagine the experiences that some have had. And I'm amazed at the strength that God has given them to even stand up and go on with their life. But these truths can help us when we look at the cross to see that we've experienced nothing in principle that God didn't experience. And God's vindication of Jesus promises His vindication of us. And I want to say, in light of 
all we see about history and the resurrection and how God vindicates Christ and the, and the e- evil that the enemies did in sharpening their sword ultimately pierced themselves. The cross was their defeat. We are foolish to live any other way but His way. We are foolish to do that. What other thoughts do you have as we close? I couldn't help but think of 30, 39 and 40 there. Yes, um, they, they fit very well. Um, you know, salvation of the righteous from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them, delivers them, delivers them from the wicked, and saves them because they take refuge in Him. I just can't help but see Jesus in that. Yeah, that's right. The Lord does save them and deliver them. Very good. Very good point. Anything else? Yes, Phil. Based on my notes from Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> uh-huh. I think you referenced that Jesus quotes from verse 9. Verse 11. Yeah. Well, this verse 9 and 11. Verse 9 and 11 both say inheriting the earth. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, but it's the Septuagint in verse 11, I think, that the quote is actually from. I may have misstated that in a sermon. It wouldn't be the first time I ever did something like that. But but I think it's actually verse 11 that they quote from. But verse 9 and 11 both use similar expressions. And then it's, again, in 2029. Inheriting the earth and the land, yes. It's in, in, in 9... Uh, it's in it's in nine eleven twenty two twenty nine and thirty four, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. Brad's got he said he's got a long song for us in a moment. Jason, do you want to lead us in prayer for we? Our God, it's certainly been wonderful to be here tonight, God. And this psalm, like all of the psalms, like every uh, part of your scripture, has is so applicable and helpful to us, Father. Uh, we can relate so much to the uh, uh, to the words of this psalm as we, uh, uh, you know, experience difficulties in life, and various challenges that cause us to. Uh, question your ways in uh, what is pleasing to you and your justice, Father. Help us to to not take these just small snapshots of our life and, and, and draw conclusions from them that we should not, but help us to take uh, and adopt a more eternal view of, of life. Help us to, to look at things through, through your eyes and to, to realize, Father, that uh, those that uh, trust and, and serve you, Father, uh, will ultimately uh, prosper, maybe not here on this earth, uh, but uh, eternally you will see us through all of this, Father, and will reward us, Father. We are thankful so much for your word. Help us to long for it. Help us to, to thirst for it. Help us to to learn and want to learn more and more uh, about it. Help help us to devote ourselves to uh, the study of it and the meditation of it. And 
but help us ultimately be convicted by what you have told us, Father. We're thankful for all the good things that you have blessed us with, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, all right, Isaac, jump into the. Did you hear about that? I didn't hear more necessarily. My dad was asking about it. His aunt worshiped with them. Got several songs incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh... All right, let's start with uh, verses one through six. Uh, our God and our God, our help in ages past. We'll sing those verses, and we'll stop. No me so. Have no disturbing thoughts about those doing wickedly. And be not envious of those who work iniquity. For even like the growing grass and be cut down shall they and like the grain and tender plant they all shall fade away said thou thy trust upon the Lord continue doing good dwell thou securely Make faithfulness thy firm. Joy in the Lord, he'll grant each care for which thy heart may call. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust him, he'll do it all. And like the Just as display, and he thy judgment shall bring forth like noontide of the day. All right, so that wasn't a tune that we're very familiar with. <laughs> so um, I'm actually going to have to skip the next one. I had um, realized I have inadvertently left out a line in there. And um, so in the third stanza, there's only six instead of seven. So um, I'm going to have to... Scribal error. Yes. Yeah, my editor uh, yeah. missed that one, and I'm the editor. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's jump over to uh, the third one, uh, 37, 23 through 28, to the tune of How Shall the Young Secure Their Hearts. Oh, I didn't write a note down. What would that be? Um, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that's about right. <laughs> the very steps of man have been established by the Lord. He takes great pleasure in man's way, his progress to through 40 uh, to the tune of the army of our Lord. We don't sing this one too often, but it's pretty simple to pick up. So, The righteous shall inherit and ever in its wealth the just man's mouth will Wisdom speak his tongue will justice tell. The law of God is in his heart. No stumbling steps he'll make. The wicked spies upon the just and seeks his life to take. Within the way 